Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Er Garcia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode, we continue our exploration of the book The Dream Betrayed, Religious Challenge of the Working Class, by the American Lutheran scholar Karen L. Bloomquist, published by Fortress Press in 1990. Having explored the dilemma by which working-class people are confronted, how their own yearning for release from oppression only increases their subservience, how the church through its own practices and theological approaches engages in its own forms of classism, and the necessity to name as sin the structural injustices by which working-class people are oppressed, Bloomquist turns to the question of the redemption of working-class reality. How can the church understand and communicate the reality of God's redemption amid the realities of working-class existence. What speaks to the sin that lies at the heart of that reality and functions in a liberating rather than an ideologically enslaving manner? And so, without any further ado, this is episode 17, The Dream Betrayed, part 5, The Redemption of Working-Class Reality. At the heart of Bloomquist's analysis is her argument that the domination which the working class experiences both within and beyond the workplace is so pervasive that it seems both inevitable and divinely ordained. Within this context, working class people are reduced to individualistic attempts to escape this domination, which, while they might provide an escape hatch for some, are mostly doomed to failure, and in any event do nothing to address the sin of structural injustice. Thus, the oppression of the working class remains intact precisely because individual yearning for release from oppression is not the same as the transformation or redemption of the oppressive structures by which working class people are enslaved. The individual might be jettisoned from the historical situation of domination, but this only enforces the status quo. If the individual is free, why worry about the domination to which others are subject? The reduction of the collective yearning for liberation to an individualized desire for freedom, its privatization from the sphere of social transformation to the realm of personal aspiration, and its displacement from the activity of resistance to the ritual of consumerism, are the mechanisms through which neoliberalism and corporatized capitalism continue to exert control and dominance over the lives of the working class. 
the point as far as Bloomquist is concerned is that salvation must necessarily be social and historical. Spirituality is not and cannot be a privatised impulse that removes the individual from their historical context. Rather, it is a sense of the fullness of human life that critiques and transforms that context. Thus, what is required is a theology of redemption that breaks through the dominating structures of injustice in such a way as empowers working-class people. They become the active subjects of historical reality rather than the passive objects of controlling forces. And yet it is here that we encounter a paradox. From the Christian perspective, redemption is ultimately a reality that is wrought by God. No human action, nor mere obedience to any system of rules, can redeem and transform or make human life more fully human. If this is the case, is it not futile for human beings to act at all? Shouldn't the working class either passively submit to their circumstances or else try and win their own individualized freedom? The answer to this paradox is that Christian theology has always held that redemption has both an objective and a subjective efficiency. That is to say, redemption is both an internal and an external reality. The project of redemption is ultimately the project of God, but human beings are not mere helpless puppets within or passive objects of that project. Human beings are active subjects within God's project of redemption. Our task and invitation is to participate in that project by becoming more fully human together through our shared lives in history, through seeking to live out with one another the justice that is the reality of God. In other words, breaking through and overcoming the dominance of sin, the dominance of the structural injustice by which the working class is enslaved, cannot involve creating paradigms of power that replicate the world's oppressive structures. If, after all, the working class remains helpless and powerless, even after the present reality of dominating injustice is overcome, what, if anything, has really changed? The sin that is the lived reality of working-class oppression must be challenged and overcome. But it must be done so as part of the same redemptive project that is God's ultimate work of salvation. Any attempt to transform the historical reality of the working class, absent the redemptive purpose of creation, will simply allow the sin of domination and control to retain its hegemony over working-class lives. For Bloomquist, this coalition between human resistance to oppression and the redemptive project of God finds its fulcrum in the person of Jesus, who was crucified by the oppressive powers of civil and religious domination, and who, as the risen Christ, became the embodiment of salvation from bondage to those same oppressive powers. Both the crucified Jesus and the risen Christ reveal a God immersed in the reality of human life, and who, through his liberating practices, challenged the sinful powers of domination and oppression that scorned the poor, the outcast, and the disenfranchised. Jesus rejected self-enclosed systems and the submission they demanded. 
He rejected exclusion on the basis of race, gender, or socioeconomic status, and his practice, his way of life, was born from an intimate experience of a God who is relational, who gives and receives, who invites and enables, who desires for us a covenantal coexistence that embodies and realizes the covenant between humankind and God into which we are all called. The God revealed in Jesus is a God who refuses to associate with human attempts at domination and control. Jesus did not come to advocate for the system or hierarchies of vested human interest, but instead to transform those systems and the operating assumptions upon which the hierarchies were and continue to be based. His crucifixion at the hands of those who profited from these systems and hierarchies was an inevitable consequence of his way of life. But this inevitability did not reveal the power of sin and its dominating injustice, rather it revealed the manner of God's solidarity with human suffering. For the God revealed on the cross is not the God of neoliberalism or corporatist capitalism, whose ideologies of upward mobility mask the pain of exploitation and betrayal. Rather, Jesus' death on the cross revealed a God who stands very publicly in solidarity with the victims of oppression and injustice. According to Bloomquist, the upshot of all this is that God does not legitimize or rationalize human suffering, but identifies with our humanity in the midst of that suffering. Jesus' death on the cross proclaims the death of the myth of human self-sufficiency, of the fully autonomous self-made person who can manipulate reality to their own self-interested ends. The solidarity of God with us means that we are more than passive victims. Despite our bondage to the illusions and promises of upward mobility and self-realization, Jesus' resurrection enables us to sustain expectancy amid pain. Amid helplessness and death, the God of justice-seeking love is revealed as the starkest possible contrast to every idol of power and ideology that sought to subjugate or dominate through fear. Bloomquist argues that Jesus refused to live in accordance with the divisive mandates of classism. He refused to engage in self-justification. He refused to try and be a god. And in all these refusals he became the very revelation of God. Viewed from the perspectives of convention and assumption, the cross looks like a catastrophic defeat. But the resurrection proclaims that it has in fact opened up the possibility of a new creation, a new reality, a new way of being. The redemptive project of God revealed on the cross and in the empty tomb is nothing less than the victory of life, over the death-dealing forces of sin. This victory initiates wholesale changes in the structure of reality. The notion of a god or any earthly power, which requires the payment of debt or sacrifice by cowering subjects, is replaced by the god who gives of God's self in such a way that humanity is adopted as children of God, unified by God's solidarity with us, through which we come into solidarity with one another. 
instead of an economic or legal transaction, we have genuine relational coexistence. Instead of individualistic attempts to save ourselves, faith becomes the mechanism through which we are able to act, resisting both the sin of structural injustice and making possible unalienated work that bears the stamp of our own humanity. We forget our fears and sterile ways of self-justification, giving way instead to creative love as we fight the mechanisms of domination and control. Empowered by the redemptive promise of the resurrection, we act in solidarity with the suffering and the oppressed, reenacting the love of God made visible on the cross. For Bloomquist, this potential for transformation gives voice to a central truth. Faith is not separate from historical experience or merely a privatized, internalized reality. Rather, it is a perspective that enables our historical context to be critiqued, opening up the possibility of naming and unmasking the contradiction between the dream proffered to us by corporatized capitalism and the oppressive reality that is the daily lived experience of the working class. This unmasking enables us to engage in practices that resist the trend toward passivity and victimization. This is encapsulated in the concept of coram deo, that is, life lived in the presence of God. Such a life is one in which our relationships with ourselves, with others, and the whole of creation is lived as though it were and in fact is in relationship with God. All reality is thus perceived as the presence of God, a perspective that threatens social structures and ideologies precisely because it challenges their claim to absolutism and inevitability. The faith that is the basis of this challenge is not opposed to the world, which would be a dualistic retreat from historical reality. Rather, it opposes the sin of claiming godlike status, a sin embedded in human systems of control and assumptions of autonomy. Thus, the opposition that arises is not between God and the world or humanity, but between God and the sin manifested in structural injustice. The opposition is between God and the dehumanizing that is the product of this sin. The notion of Coram Deo, life lived in the presence of God, understands that the world comes into self-contradiction whenever it gives way to absolutist claims, whenever it tries to become its own God. Faith which resists such claims does not seek to rule over or dominate. Rather, it calls all people into a mutual accountability that challenges the world whenever any system or ideology attempts absolutist hegemony. If we allow the systems of domination to go unchallenged, we are cooperating with sin. This includes cooperating with the sin that dominates and oppresses the lives of the working class. This is not to say that resistance will bring about a demonstrable victorious overcoming of the forces of domination. Ultimate transformation and redemption is the province of God. To attempt it by our own efforts is to fall into the very sin of absolutism and autonomy against which we seek to struggle. Rather, the life of faith, life lived in the presence of God, 
involves living in defiance of the powers of domination in such a way that they begin to lose their dominating power. By unmasking the assertions to divinity that lie at the heart of the structures of injustice, we begin the long process of their defeat, for such powers can only do dominate so long as the objects of their domination are either ignorant of their oppression or reduced to passive cooperators in their own suffering. Unmasking the idol destroys its totalitarian hold on our lives. As an objective structure of control, it may still reign, but it does not do so unresisted or unchallenged. It is in going unchallenged that structural injustice is truly victorious. By challenging and resisting, we undo that victory and establish possibilities for a new course and a new outcome. Bloomquist calls this cohesion of social, political, economic and theological activity the praxis of redemption. Such a praxis, she argues, enables us to enter into an active relationship with our external reality. Instead of being separated from it, we are changed by the very process of resistance to that reality's unjust structures and ideologies. This change arises from the experience of oppression, is set against the prevailing social and cultural consciousness, and is both social and individual precisely because of the extent to which the individual is enmeshed in society. It should not be assumed, however, that this praxis subsumes or diminishes the gracious activity of God. It does not replace the divine solidarity with humankind embodied in the cross, but enables that event to be more thoroughly understood within our own historical context. This understanding influences our interpretation of the life and ministry of Jesus, which in turn enables new forms of praxis to emerge. Thus, praxis ultimately enables communication of the mystery revealed in Jesus. Bloomquist asserts that involving ourselves in the lives and struggles of other people opens us to new theological understandings. Bloomquist herself cites examples from her own ministry experience in which her working-class congregations, through engagement with black, disabled and immigrant communities, were able to both articulate their own experience of demeaning control and suffering in the workplace, as well as stand in solidarity with the justice claims of other victims of injustice. In these instances, outsiders, people and communities whom the culture of upward mobility would normally condemn or ignore, became signs of God's activity, channels through which grace was able to break into their own lives and reality. For Bloomquist, the praxis of redemption has three marks or chief characteristics. Firstly, it resists or counters domination and enables solidarity between different groups who share the reality of being the victims of injustice. Secondly, it arises out of an experience of domination which then becomes the basis from which that domination may be critiqued rather than submitted to with cynical indifference. Thirdly, it is shaped from below rather than from above, being solidarity with the victims of injustice rather than the beneficiaries of the status quo.
Bloomquist asserts that if there is to be a transformation of the reality of the working class and their experience of betrayal and oppression, the suffering to which this experience gives rise must be expressed and given an historical context. This runs strongly counter to our present cultural inclination toward muting expressions of pain or dissent. Obsessed with the notion of happiness or maintaining a positive attitude, we would much rather recall pleasant or nostalgic memories than confront the reality of our own or others' suffering. By identifying ourselves with upwardly mobile values that prioritise what we or our children wish to become, rather than recalling what we have left behind, we assimilate and are co-opted by middle-class values of what to strive for in place of concern for others. For Bloomquist, however, the communication of suffering is the beginning of a faith-motivated praxis oriented toward the transformation of life and of our own theological understanding. Only by breaking through the silencing illusion of no suffering or dissent can we move from mute powerless resignation toward challenging the notion that the forces by which we are oppressed are both all-pervasive and divinely sanctioned. Through such expression, our memories of suffering can correlate our theology with our socio-political activism. We are reminded of the history of the defeated and the dominated, Meaning is not reserved for the victors or the affluent. Memory shocks us out of resignation or passivity. Memory mobilizes a dangerous tradition that becomes a force for our liberation. By remembering our suffering, we are able to analyze the structures of injustice and realize they are human-created and thus transformable. Christian tradition keeps alive the memory of the crucified Christ as a dangerous memory of freedom amid the systems of control by which working-class lives are dominated. This memory compels us to a social activism that changes ourselves and our social context. God's redemptive promise embodied in Christ is embedded in the midst of the domination and control experienced by working-class people. The presence of that potent symbol of God's solidarity with human suffering imparts new meaning to the experiences of the forgotten and the oppressed. Finally, Bloomquist argues that if the redemptive potential of the cross is to be acted upon, a spirituality of social empowerment is required. This spirituality first enables working-class people to become aware of the contradiction of their situation of their obedience to the promises and enticements of neoliberal ideology and of their betrayal by and enslavement to that ideology. This awakening awareness invites a crying out that becomes the basis for resistance. Secondly, the structural injustices that perpetrate and perpetuate this contradiction and its enslaving outcomes comes to be unmasked and named as sin. This shifts the problem from being one of not having measured up to one of being enmeshed in a series of historical relationships that create social, political and economic cultures that are allegedly inevitable and unalterable. But being human-created, 
they are understood to be eminently transformable. Thirdly, in giving up our attempts at individualized liberation, we likewise set ourselves free from the propensity to lapse into cynicism or apathy. Instead, our experience of domination and alienation becomes an historical context shaped by human conduct. This being the case, we are empowered to live coram Deo, in the presence of God, which in turn transforms our powerlessness into active struggle. The powers of oppression might reign, but they do not rule. Fourthly, through praxis, we are moved into a position of solidarity with others, overcoming both our sense of unique and privileged victimhood, as well as powerlessness others feel when they are separated from other sections of society. The net effect is that we begin to orient ourselves toward being in relation with others. Instead of trying to save ourselves, salvation comes through our solidarity with the other victims of injustice. Instead of needing to justify ourselves, we experience the grace that is the strange movement of God's Spirit that comes to us through the experience of the other, the outsider who is not one of us. Individualism is replaced by an understanding of ourselves as person in community. The trend toward privatization is countered by a praxis that understands salvation in a communal matrix. Apathy is replaced by the possibility of making a difference in how we live our lives in the world. Grace, Bloomquist concludes, is both gift and task. In refusing to accept the givenness of the structures of oppression, we become more open to the operation of God's grace. The acceptance of this gift of grace in turn engages us in the task of struggling against injustice in society. By committing to solidarity with the least and with the losers of society, we act in defiance of the pervasive works righteousness that governs life and defines salvation in class-based societies. For the church to become the place where this process begins, it must embody the gospel of redemption amid the realities of working-class people's lives. In doing so, it becomes a community of resistance to the forces of domination and control in solidarity with the suffering of the working class and the reality of their lived experience. And so we have come to the conclusion of another episode of Ergasia. In our next episode, we will conclude our exploration of the dream portrayed with Bloomquist's views about how the church can literally midwife communities of justice into being. But that's all for now. To leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future projects, please go to the webpage at www ergasia.podbean.com that's www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. 
I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.